on Jesus, the new temple, and the new priesthood, I wanted to start again with a review of the overall narrative of Scripture. Remember, we have the covenants that we've talked about, starting with the dominion covenant, the dominion mandate, the covenant of dominion, which is given in chapter 1 of Genesis, the very first chapter of our Bible. And we talk about that covenant, and then the Adamic covenant, and then the covenant of Noah, and then the covenant given with Abraham, and then the Mosaic covenant, and then ultimately the new covenant. And in that narrative of scripture, shared with us through a study of the covenants, we come to understand how it is that Christianity was the first religion of that original creation, for that tree of life in the garden was Christ himself, pre-incarnate. Then we understand, after the fall, the giving of the Adamic covenant, which was a promise that Christ would come and bring to fruition that which the original creation was always destined for, which was ultimately the new covenant, the incarnate Christ. So after that Adamic covenant, then we find sin running rampant in the world, and so we end up with the great flood of the entire world, and we have the covenant given with Noah, that rainbow in the sky, that God would never again destroy all flesh on earth, certainly not through a flood, but I think it extends beyond that as well. And then ultimately the calling of Abraham and his covenant, which was very much a part of the Adamic covenant, but it was more specific because now not only through Adam would Christ come, but through Abraham, one of the many children of Adam, would Christ come. And then through that Abrahamic covenant, we have further definition through Isaac and Jacob. And then ultimately with that Jacob-Israel clan that turned into the Israelites, we have the introduction of that first heavens and earth into the world, which is the Mosaic Covenant. And then ultimately Jeremiah calls that old, and we find ourselves flowing into the new covenant with the incarnate Christ. So that narrative of Scripture can be told through those covenants. And we also talk about this narrative of Scripture through another means, and I want to just review that briefly, because all of this is important in this discussion we're going to have today about Jesus, the new temple, and that new priesthood. So another way to look at this narrative of Scripture, which expands a little bit on the covenants that we just quickly reviewed, is to understand first that we have the original creation, which was itself the creation of the actual physical, literal universe. That's what the original creation account in Genesis chapter 1 is all about. Simply understanding the covenants demonstrates that proof, and you need nothing else. But as you look into other areas, other, other avenues of the narrative of Scripture, you find this proof being given over and over again through all sorts of different means. One of the things that comes next in our narrative of Scripture after the original creation is the notation of the original priesthood 
And that's going to be the focus of our discussion today is this original priesthood. And we're going to want to understand what that all means because that's a powerful thing. And just like understanding the covenants will in and of itself help us understand that Genesis is truly all about the literal and physical creation of the spiritual realm and the earthly realm. So, too, the study of the original priesthood, the study of the priesthood altogether, will help you understand that Genesis 1 has to be about the physical creation. It's not about covenant creation. It's about the literal creation of the spiritual realm and the earthly realm. So, in the narrative of Scripture, we have that original creation, and then we have the original priesthood, which was the pre-incarnate Christ after the order of Melchizedek. So the Levitical priesthood is nowhere to be found in the original creation. It's the Melchizedek priesthood that we find. And in that whole process of the original creation, the first sign of trouble is the mutiny in heaven. The mutiny in heaven by Satan and one-third of the angels who are then cast down from the heavens into, literally into Tartarus, as the Bible describes it, under the earth. And then we have the fall of Adam. And the fall of Adam then brings this brings this uh, shrouding of mystery upon the Melchizedek priesthood and the pre-incarnate Christ. And literally we have in the story the account of this these things happening where you have that angel with the fiery sword it turns about placed there before the garden to protect the pre-incarnate Christ from being accessed again until we get to the incarnate Christ. So that Melchizedek priesthood becomes shrouded in mystery at the fall. And after that happens, then we have again this concept of the flood, the sin becoming such a problem in the world that we have God bringing forth a universal flood and starting over with Noah. And then after Noah, <clears throat> the problem of sin becoming so great again that we have the incident at the Tower of Babel where the people were building a tower up into heaven so that God should he attempt to flood the world again, would not be able to kill men because they would be safe in this tower. So God says, no, we're not going to do that. And he separates people uh, across this land, which ultimately gets broken up into the various continents. And so we have, by separating people through tongue and across great stretches of land and breaking the land apart into the different continents, then in essence we have God protecting humankind from universally falling into sin as they had done prior to the flood and as they were beginning to do there at the Tower of Babel after the flood. After all this happens, we have the calling of Abraham, which is now the distinct line through Adam, through Noah, through which the promise to Adam, the Adamic covenant, would come. And then through Adam we have Moses being called to bring forth that first heavens and earth layered upon mankind. And with this Mosaic Covenant, we have the first concept of a 
human priesthood. And that first concept of the human priesthood is this Aaron being called. And remember, we talked in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. And in Hebrews 5, we learned that Aaron was the first priest of the living God of the ancients. So, of humankind, Aaron was the first high priest of the living God. Prior to Aaron, there were no human priests of God. Prior to the Levitical priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood was the only priesthood and the only being who was a part of that Melchizedek priesthood was the pre-incarnate Christ. Remember in the story of Abraham, we talked about that Melchizedek priesthood coming forth and blessing Abraham and in essence handing over the torch of the priesthood to that first heavens and earth that would come through Abraham, that being the Mosaic covenant, and into the hands of Aaron and the Levites. So we have this temporary institution of the Mosaic Covenant, always meant to be temporary from the very beginning, and with it, the temporary implementation of the new Levitical priesthood. After that, we have Jeremiah calling this first heavens and earth old, which immediately had all of mankind looking toward that which would come and be called new. So Jeremiah is the first to call that first heavens and earth old and to have us looking forward to the new that would come. And that new that would come was associated with this incarnate Christ. After Jeremiah, we have the preparation. We have that fallen post-flood world after the first heavens and earth of Israel of God had become obsolete in the days of Jeremiah, prepared for the end of the Mosaic Covenant and the beginning of the new creation. And it was prepared through the Greekification of the world, which included the translation of the original Hebrew Old Testament text, both word and culture, into the Greek Septuagint. The preparation of the world was done to prepare the people for Christ and to prepare the world that Christ would come into for his coming. And after that preparation, we have the Christ, the conqueror, coming into the world, into this Greco-Roman setting, being born as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, reviving that Melchizedek priesthood, which had temporarily been replaced by that Levitical priesthood, Aaron being the first human being called to be a priest of the true God. So in this Greco-Roman setting, Christ is born and revives the Melchizedek priesthood. And ultimately, through his ministry and through the cross and through the ascension and all the things that he does, he conquers he conquers, and by undoing the works of the devil, he conquers all the forces against him and ultimately brings, the forth, the universe, brings forth the universal restoration, which occurred in AD 70, or if you're a futurist, is yet future, but ultimately brings forth that universal restoration. So this is the, the covenants that we talk about the dominion mandate, the covenant of dominion that occurs in Genesis chapter 1 
and then the Adamic covenant, the covenant with Noah, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and then the new covenant. Now, our discussion today will be focused on this new covenant. What are we going to do here with our new covenant discussion? What we're going to do is look at an article that is shared on the site, <clears throat> excuse me, the website of Scott Hahn, who shared an article by Brant Pitre, P-I-T-R-E, uh, who is at Our Lady of Holy Cross College. And the title of the article is called Jesus, the New Temple and the New Priesthood. Now, this is a great article, and I would like, it, it would help all of you to take the time to read this article. It's It's rather long. It's a longer article, but it's really helpful. And today we're going to cover it. We're going to look at it in summary form. We won't read it word for word. And we'll take a look at what it is that he's teaching about Jesus. And obviously by the title, Jesus, the New Temple and the New Priesthood, this dovetails really well into this discussion we're having. This discussion we're having about the Genesis creation account and the Mosaic covenant, the first heavens and earth, and the new covenant, the final have the new heavens and earth, and how all that fits together, and how the temple, the understanding that we have of the temple through Scripture, and the understanding that we have of the priesthood through Scripture, is a very clear and straightforward means for us to understand what's actually happening in the narrative of Scripture. When we understand the temple and the priesthood, we understand that the Genesis creation account is literally about the literal creation of the universe, of the spiritual realm and all of angel kind in the very first creation event there after the creation of heaven and earth, we have the creation of light. That's the creation of the spiritual realm and all of angel kind. That's what we have going on there. And then as we go further, we get to day six and we have the creation of humankind. And all this is described in a book that I wrote called The Pearl, The Captivating Story of the Wondrous Love of God. You can get that on my website at www.spiritualfitnessprogram.com or over at amazon.com. That book describes the literal creation of heaven and earth through the prism of the cross there in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. When we study those events through a study of the temple and the priesthood, <clears throat> what we find is that that's exactly what happened there. We have the literal creation of the universe in Genesis chapter 1. And then finally, with the Mosaic Covenant, we have the heavens and earth introduced as a concept, as a covenantal concept, connected to the Mosaic Covenant, covenant that has attached with it a priesthood in the Mosaic Covenant, that priesthood being the Levitical priesthood. So, this subject of the temple and the priesthood helps us understand this topic that we're on, the literal creation account in Genesis and the new heavens and earth. So, 
what this article starts with is a quote from a book called The Mystery of the Temple. And the quote says this, When the gospel texts are read straight through with a view to discovering the attitude of Jesus toward the temple and all it represented, two apparently contradictory features become immediately apparent. Jesus' immense respect for the temple and his very lively criticism of abuses and formalism. Yet above and beyond this, we have his constantly repeated assertion that the temple is to be transcended, that it has had its day, and that it is doomed to disappear. So that's the quote from this book, The Mystery of the Temple, that gets us into the article. And then the author continues with, in order to answer this question of how do we explain this view that Jesus had of his respect for the temple that stood and yet his constantly repeated assertion that that temple that stood was to be transcended. Well, in the author, the author in this article, what he does is he says in order to understand this, he wants to focus on four aspects of the Old Testament temple that are widely known but have not been sufficiently highlighted in the historical study of Jesus. Although most students of the Bible have a basic knowledge of the importance of the temple at the time of Jesus, our appreciation, says the author, of ancient temple theology is somewhat underdeveloped. So in this paper that he's sharing, which we're reviewing today, he says he wants to move beyond the obvious physical, uh, visible political and national significance of the temple and dig into its deeper theological and liturgical significance. He says from a theological and liturgical perspective, for a first century Judean, the temple was at least four things. And so the author shares those four things. He says, one, the temple was the dwelling place of God on earth. Two, the temple was a microcosm of heaven and earth. Three, the temple was the sole place of sacrificial worship. And four, the temple was the place of the sacrificial priesthood. Now, as he goes through this article, we're going to go through a little bit of each area. It's marvelous because what he shows is that each of these points are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and ultimately immolated body of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now you might be thinking, what does immolated body mean? So immolate means to kill an animal, for instance, as a religious sacrifice. Immolate means to offer and sacrifice, especially to kill as a sacrificial victim. So that's what immolate means, to offer and sacrifice, especially as a sacri- through a sacrificial victim. So this immolated body of Jesus, this body that was offered in sacrifice, this body that was killed as a sacrificial victim, this immolated body of Christ becomes the New Testament temple. And it becomes the New Testament temple right there, then and there on the cross. 
Now we'll take a break here just to think for a moment because in Hebrews chapter 9, many folks will read in Hebrews chapter 9 and think to themselves that what they see there, well, they think to themselves that what they see there is that Jesus would enter into a temple in heaven. But what they don't see there is that understanding of Hebrews chapter 9 where Jesus on the cross, that immolated body of Jesus on the cross, Hebrews chapter 9 literally refers to that as heaven itself. Remember the second item that this article is going to cover, a microcosm of heaven and earth. That's what the temple is. That's what Hebrews chapter 9 is doing. It's literally, literally calling Jesus on the cross, heaven itself. So these four things, the dwelling place of God, that's the first one we're going to cover. You know what? Jesus is God incarnate. That's the most basic lesson of Christianity. Jesus is God incarnate. God came down from heaven, took on the form of man, and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the singular truth of Christianity. God coming down to become man. That's the distinction of Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion has man becoming God. Christianity alone has God becoming man. And so this first thing that the temple was, the dwelling place of God on earth, we find that fulfilled in Jesus through the Incarnation. This is this body of the Christ was the dwelling place of God on earth. And the second, the microcosm of heaven and earth, we'll see that this Jesus is the focal point, is the place that heaven and earth meet. Jesus is the place that heaven and earth come together. It's a marvelous thought that this place, this incarnate Christ, is the place where, Je where heaven and earth come together. One of the ways I say this is, like this, this is something that reflects this. It is at the cross where the physical and the spiritual all come together in one cosmic confluence of divinity and humanity. And it is at the cross where all this is happening that a true understanding of the beginning and the end can be properly discerned. So think about that. We're talking about this second point. We're talking briefly about that the temple was a microcosm of heaven and earth. Now think about what happened at the cross. At the cross, you have the physical and the spiritual all come together. And it's a cosmic event. It's an event of universal significance for both the spiritual realm and the earthly realm. The cross isn't just a man dying there, but it's the living God dwelling in that human body, having become one of us, bringing divinity and humanity together in one place and bringing all the universe, the spiritual realm, the earthly realm to judgment at that one place to pay a sacrifice and to conquer over all that would 
do battle with God at that one place at the cross. It is at the cross where the physical and the spiritual all come together in one cosmic confluence of divinity and humanity that we can truly understand the beginning and the end. That's what we have to start with is an understanding of the cross. So remember I said that this discussion is related to what really is happening in Genesis chapter 1. We need to understand what's happening at the cross in order to understand what happened in Genesis chapter 1. Once we understand what happened at the cross, and as we understand that more and more deeply, then we pull away from what is called today in many circles covenant creation, because we realize that's not what's happening in Genesis chapter 1. Covenant creation would have us believe that there was this, that in essence the earth was a temple that was being built for the dwelling place of God. But that's not the case at all. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the physical creation of heaven and earth, but what we have in Genesis chapter 1 is the temple described as the tree of life who is the pre-incarnate Christ. That was the temple of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. That's the temple that we lost access to when Adam fell and was cast out of the Garden of Eden. It's no earthly thing that was lost. It was Christ himself that was lost to humankind. Access to him was lost at the fall. So Christ himself was the temple in the original creation. And Christ himself is the temple in the new creation. And we have an earthly temple in that temporary first heavens and earth, which we know as the Mosaic Covenant, that was done away when Christ revitalized that first temple of the original creation. See, when we understand what's happening with the temple and the priesthood, then we understand Genesis chapter 1 and the temporary layering upon humankind, the Mosaic Covenant and the Levitical priesthood, and the flow then into the New Covenant. The New Covenant did away with the Mosaic Covenant, but it didn't do away with the covenant of dominion given in Genesis chapter 1, it fulfilled it. It didn't do away with the Adamic covenant given in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, specifically 3.15, verse 3.15. What it did is it fulfilled it. It didn't do away with the Abrahamic covenant. It fulfilled it. See, it fulfilled, it did away with the Mosaic covenant, but it fulfilled the dominion mandate or covenant of dominion, the Adamic covenant, and the Abrahamic covenant. So the second item, microcosm of heaven and earth, that's Jesus, the immolated body of Jesus on the cross. That's what Hebrews 9 is referring to as heaven. In one of our earlier podcasts, we covered that. Go back to the podcast that we've shared through when, since when we started, because we've been on the subject, 
And several of the podcasts are on the book of Hebrews. And then later we cover Hebrews chapter 5, 6, and 7 in relation to the priesthood. But before that, we started with Hebrews chapter 9. We showed how Christ himself is referred to as heaven itself. So if you go back to those, in the light of all these things we've talked about, you'll get a better sense of what we were talking about in those podcasts. The third thing, the sole place of sacrificial worship. Well, that immolated body was the sacrificial lamb given up in the New Testament temple. Jesus is that place. There is no building. There's a body. A body that was formed from the beginning of the world for this very purpose. That immolated body of Christ is the sole place of sacrificial worship that brings forth the new covenant. And the fourth thing, the place of the sacrificial priesthood Okay, the place of that sacrificial priesthood was where? In the body of that Christ. For Jesus, God incarnate, was the person of that body, and he was the Melchizedek priest. Say that again. The place of the sacrificial priesthood is the temple on earth, and where was the place of the sacrificial priesthood? But in the body of that Christ. So that Old Testament temple was four things to them. The dwelling place of God on earth, a microcosm of heaven and earth, the sole place of sacrificial worship, and the place of the sacrificial priesthood. And Jesus fulfilled all of those things in the Christ, in the body. The Christ was the dwelling place of God on earth, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christ was the microcosm of heaven and earth. Hebrews 9 even calls him heaven itself. The sole place of sacrificial worship, that's that immolated body of Jesus, hanging there on that old wooden cross. And the place of the sacrificial priesthood, well, that was the incarnate Melchizedek priest, Christ, inside that body, the person of that body, the person who was the man, Christ Jesus. He's all four of these things. So this article, it's a great article. It walks through and takes us through all of these different subjects. And it's a great article to read. We'll cover some different things. He starts with the importance of the temple in, ancient, uh, in the ancient world and in that religion associated with the Mosaic Covenant, and they talk about the temple being the focal point of every aspect of that old national life. Now, in local synagogues and things like that, they would read and do things like that, but it was always in the temple where at the annual feast, the sacrifices for the people were made. It was always in the temple, let's start at the beginning, it was always in the temple that the daily morning and evening feasts were done, that the weekly Sabbath feasts were done, uh, Sabbath, Sabbath sacrifices were done, that the monthly sacrifices for the monthly feasts were done, and that the annual sacrifices for the annual feasts were done. So in that sacrificial worship of the Levitical priesthood, 
that only came to be at the time of the Mosaic Covenant did not exist before then. Remember, there's a verse that tells us, through Moses the law came. Through Christ, grace and truth took on being. Well, through Moses the law came. This is that sacrificial system, the Levitical priesthood. Through Moses this came. It didn't exist before because before Moses it wasn't the Levitical priesthood. It was the Melchizedek priesthood, pre-incarnate Christ. Through Moses this law came. The temple was built and the sacrifices began. The daily morning and evening, the weekly, the monthly, and the annual. Now all of these, all of these were resolved in one sacrifice through the immolated body of Christ there on the cross. Every single sacrifice described throughout the Old Testament associated with the Levitical priesthood, every single one of them was completely resolved then and there at the cross. Nothing associated with blood sacrifice went beyond the cross. It's all resolved there in Jesus. So he starts out then with this conversation about the importance of the temple and even goes on to say that that the sentiments in the Jewish text, those Old Testament texts, they talk about three things the world being sustained by. The law, the temple, and the deeds of loving kindness. The temple was so important to them that it was connected directly to the sustenance of the world, the sustaining of the world. Now think about that for a second. Remember we said after the fall, the world fell into sin and God brought forth the universal flood. It restarted with Noah. And after Noah, man fell into universal sin. And so at the Tower of Babel, God separated humankind and ultimately separated the continents. So that all of humanity could not in one voice fall into sin again. And then after that, he brought forth through the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Levitical priesthood, and the earthly temple. So when they said that the world was sustained by the law and the temple and the deeds of loving kindness, the temple is there because it's sustaining humankind from falling into universal sin that brought forth that flood, that universal flood that killed all flesh. It's sustaining humankind from all of mankind, falling into sin. That's the concept. Think about that as we think of Jesus being that New Testament temple, because he's going to fulfill what that Old Testament temple was pointing towards. He goes on to say in this, in these old writings, the service associated with the temple service is a technical term for the sacrificial worship offered to God by his priests in the temple. So the importance of the liturgy of the Jerusalem temple is not simply national, but it's cosmic. Now think about that again. What the author's telling us is that if we understand the temple in that 
Mosaic Covenant. The importance of the liturgy of that temple is not simply national. Okay, it didn't sustain just the Israelites. Remember what we just said? It kept humankind from falling into the kind of universal sin that would have brought forth, could have brought forth, another type of event like that universal flood or the Tower of Babel. So it wasn't just of national significance, this temple in Jerusalem, but it had cosmic significance. Remember what we read about the cross just a little bit ago. It is at the cross where the physical and the spiritual all come together in one cosmic confluence of divinity and humanity that a true understanding of the beginning and the end can be properly discerned. That's what the temple conversation is all about. Something of a cosmic nature. Universal that covers both the spiritual and the earthly realm. So the temple, they viewed it as one of the three things that sustains the world. So this is brings forth the importance. It brings forth the importance of the temple in that Mosaic Covenant, which always pointed towards something further, right? It always pointed toward it was a type that would show forth the antitype, the fulfillment of it. And ultimately, that fulfillment, as we know, is in the Christ. So with this understanding of the importance of the temple in mind, the author then says to the reader, let's now turn our attention to the four specific aspects of the temple that will play an important role in this article. The temple as the dwelling place of God, which as a New Testament Christian you understand, that was Jesus. The temple as a microcosm of heaven and earth, as a New Testament Christian you understand that that was Jesus, even called heaven itself in Hebrews chapter 9. The temple as the sole place of sacrifice, we know that's the immolated body of Jesus there on the cross. We know that as New Testament Christians. And the temple as the place of the sacrificial priesthood. And as New Testament Christians, we know that that was Melchizedek. That was Melchizedek, the high priest of God, sacrificing his body on the cross for humankind. So these four items he then gets into in some detail. The temple as the dwelling place of God is the first one that he gets into. And this is one that I think most people can understand. Um, so he gives a little bit of information about that. And in this temple, he talks about the Ark of the Covenant being there, which was the principal symbol of God's glorious presence. It's interesting because in Revelation we see in heaven the Ark, the temple and yet we know that the temple is Jesus and so we know that the ark is Jesus we know that whatever was in the ark in the Old Testament is that which Jesus brought forth through his words and deeds so it was in the ark we know that the Ten Commandments were in the ark but you know what in Jesus' ministry he brought forth the commandments 
He brought forth the moral law. He brought forth as the great lawgiver the commandments, statutes, and judgments of the new covenant. Everything else that was in that ark, Christ also brought forth. Remember Aaron's rod that budded? What was that? Life coming from that root. And Christ brought life and gives off that those leaves for healing, right? From Christ come forth the leaves for healing. And so that's who he is. He's that as well. And the bread... Christ being the body and blood, the bread, all those things. So Christ is everything that was in the covenant or in the temple of that old covenant. It all finds its fulfillment in Christ himself. It all finds its fulfillment in Christ himself. Christ being everything that's associated with it. Now, the author here also goes into a discussion about some of these verses of Christ of that of Christ's ministry associated with the Sabbath. For instance, in Matthew 12 verses 1 through 8, uh, where he is walking through the grain fields with his disciples and he quotes back into the Old Testament and says, "Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the present, which was not lawful for him to eat. And have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Then he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath as well. So this, he quotes, because it's a great it's a great temple verse connected to something greater than the temple having come. Speaking of himself, right? Something greater than the temple come. That temple not made with hands, which was and is his body. So he goes through this, does a really nice job talking about this. Someone great, Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. He goes through and does a nice job of this and helps us understand how these verses very specifically come forth to point out that Christ is referencing himself that he will be this greater temple for the new covenant. So Prior to Christ, there could be only one Lord of the Sabbath to those Israelites, the maker of the Sabbath, the Lord of creation. And so with these words, Christ is himself making himself the true temple where God dwells on earth. And as the messianic son of man, he has authority over creation itself and the Sabbath covenant. So what he's doing in these verses here as they walk through the grain fields, is identifying himself as the divine, 
in making him himself out to be the living God incarnate. And it's funny, in my book, The Pearl, which I talked about a little earlier, I actually cover these verses as well and talk about them as being those verses that teach us that Christ not only changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, but changed the priesthood from Levitical back to the Melchizedek. And the Melchizedek priesthood brought forth its own new Sabbath day associated with the new creation. And so we talk about that as well in that book. So that's his first section, and he does a really nice job. He spends a number of pages on it, and there's a lot of notes here. Um, and it's really, it's a really interesting section. I want to jump ahead here to the section where uh, we have him talking about Nathaniel because he goes into this. He talks a little bit about uh, about uh, Jacob and Jacob's vision, and he dreamed that there was a stairway set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. He was afraid. He said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. It's from Genesis chapter 28, 10 through 18. And then he talks about that a little bit in relation to the temple. He says, first it should be made clear that Jacob is having a vision, not simply of a ladder, but of a heavenly temple. In the ancient Near East, temple sanctuaries frequently consisted of several levels of ascending staircases. Here, Jacob sees the angels ascending and descending upon the staircases of the temple, engaged in liturgical worship. Second, his temple is characterized by the presence of God. Not only is the Lord depicted as standing at the apex of the temple, but Jacob is awestruck primarily because the Lord is in this place. For this reason, he names the place the house of God, the gate of heaven. And he goes on to say, once this Old Testament background is clear, Jesus' words to Nathanael take on a whole new depth. For it appears when he's speaking to Nathaniel that Jesus is focus, fusing, Jesus is fusing the heavenly temple of Jacob's vision and the heavenly son of man of Daniel's vision into one. If this is correct, the implications are weighty. No longer is the earthly sanctuary the dwelling place of the Lord. Soon Nathaniel will see the son of man revealed as the house of God and the gate of heaven. Although as before, Jesus does not specifically claim divine divinity, this is as close as it comes, he says, as Jesus fuses the heavenly temple of Jacob's vision and the son of man of Daniel's vision into one person. Himself. You see how great that is? So in this article, he literally will take you through Scripture and show you how Jesus, in his teaching, here specifically to Nathaniel, fuses that heavenly temple that is seen by Jacob and Daniel's Son of Man into one person, the Christ. Now that has implications over in Revelation too, when you see a heavenly temple, because 
Jesus has already fused that heavenly temple with himself. He is that heavenly temple. So we talk about this first section, the importance of the temple, the temple being the dwelling place of God. And as the author continues here, he resolves that temple, that is the dwelling place of God, is the incarnate Christ. Even the vision that is seen in heaven of the temple is fused into and always pointed toward being that incarnate Christ. That's an immensely marvelous point. Takes us back to Genesis. Remember what I said earlier? In Genesis, the pre-incarnate Christ was the temple in that garden. The garden wasn't the temple. Now, I know that some would teach that the garden that God created there in Genesis chapter 1, he was creating a garden temple for himself, but that's not the case. The pre-incarnate Christ, who's identified in that earthly garden as the tree of life, he was the temple of it. He was the temple of Joseph, of Jacob's, Joseph's vision. He was the temple there. And here we have, in speaking to Nathaniel, we have Jacob, uh, we have the vision of Jacob and the vision of Daniel brought together by Jesus in the words to Nathaniel that this Christ was that place, the dwelling place. Well, as the author goes on, he gets into the second point, the temple as a microcosm of heaven and earth. And now I think I'm running out of time here, so I think I'm going to pick up with this subject next week because we've got yet the temple as the microcosm of heaven and earth. And that would be the second one. And then we have the uh, temple as the sole place of sacrifice to cover and the temple as the place of the sacrificial priesthood to cover. So, so far what we've done today is we've talked about the importance of that temple, and we've talked about the temple as the dwelling place of God. And we've talked about how Christ himself in his ministry identified the temple, that temple that was even seen in heaven as fused in one place with the Son of Man that Daniel saw. So in essence, what we saw here is that Jesus in his ministry taught us that any vision that we saw in heaven of a temple and any vision that we saw of the Son of Man like Daniel's, we see Jesus bringing all those visions together and saying that they're all the same vision. They're all the vision of the in, of God coming down to heaven, from heaven to earth, taking on the form of man and becoming incarnate through the Christ. That's, the, that's what we've covered so far is that first section. The temple as the dwelling place of God. All the imagery in the Old Covenant, all the imagery we see throughout Scripture of a temple, all points to Christ. All of it. Christ is that New Testament temple. Now I know when we read, sometimes we read in Revelation that Christ is ascending up into a temple or we see some temple up in heaven. 
And we think to ourselves, well, there must be a temple there. Okay, what we need to understand is that Jesus Christ is that New Testament temple. So whenever we speak of a temple, that's him. That's who we're that's what we're speaking of. That's what we're speaking of. So that's it's it's a it's almost a mystical concept, isn't it? It's almost a mystical concept that this Jesus is the New Testament temple and all the pictures and all the types and all the visions and all that sort of thing come down to this one thing that it all fulfills itself in Christ. It's a mystical thing. It's hard to understand a little bit. I don't know that I understand it perfectly. I don't know that any of us understand it perfectly. But that's what we see happening here. And we can't understand when we read Scripture, like Hebrews 9, when Christ is called heaven itself. Well, it's hard to understand what's happening there if we don't grasp Christ as the temple. It's hard to understand the teaching that we hear where we say that Christ is the temple. But then we also say there's a temple in heaven because what's happening is we're creating multiple temples. We have a temple that we say Christ is the New Testament temple, but then we say there's a temple in heaven. Now, maybe that's a view. Maybe that's a view that says that there's a separate temple in heaven than Christ is. But I don't know. It doesn't seem like that's what we're trying to it doesn't seem like that's what Scripture is trying to teach us. It seems more like Scripture is trying to teach us that those heavenly visions of the temple are heavenly visions, are fulfilled in that person of the Christ. That's what it seems to be teaching us. That's the position of this author here. This author isn't teaching us that there's a separate temple in heaven, but he's teaching us that those temple visions that people like Jacob saw are actually fulfilled in Christ himself. They're actually fulfilled in Christ himself. And think of it this way, it's it's that uh how how uh Jacob referred to this temple as the house of God and the gate of heaven. And maybe this helps us a little bit understand this because when we think of Jesus being the temple Understanding him as the house of God is the easiest part because we understand that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Jesus. Jesus is the incarnate God. Jesus is God come from heaven down to earth to take on the form of man. That's the easier part of understanding Jesus as the temple. But think of him also as the gate of heaven. That's that phrase from Genesis chapter 28 that Jacob said, this is the gate of heaven. What is the gate of heaven if it isn't Jesus? And not the Son of God, Jesus, but the incarnate Christ, Jesus. That immolated body of Christ on the cross is our gateway to heaven. If we want to enter into heaven, we have to step through the gateway of the cross. If we want to dwell in heaven, we have to dwell in the temple of God, which is the body of Christ. As soon as I say that, I'm sure you're thinking, hey, that body of Christ has more than one meaning. Yes, it does. The body of Christ, being the incarnate Christ, the immolated body on the cross, 
we have to step into that body of Christ through the communion service, through the body and blood. And as we do that, we become a part of his greater body, the body of Christ as we know it, that we all are a part of. Takes on that second meaning. And we become a part of the temple. Him being the chief cornerstone and the rest of us being the building blocks. See how that picture of the temple then makes a little more sense? It's a mystical thing, so sometimes hard to grasp in human terms and in words. But when we take it to some of these words we see in Scripture and press it forward, we start to get a sense of those things having meaning. Him being the house of God, where the fullness of God dwelt bodily. Him being the gate of heaven, our entrance into heaven is through faith in Christ. And then him being the chief cornerstone of that true temple, which is made up of all of us, being the building blocks. And that's how we get that mystical relationship between Christ and humankind, is through an understanding of him as the temple of God. And us entering into that temple through the gateway to heaven, which is his immolated body on the cross. So I hope that makes some sense. It's quite a subject. It's quite a subject matter. It takes time to grasp. And I don't know if we ever grasp the fullness of this, of this even what Christ calls this great mystery of Christ and his bride. When we start to understand this and we take it back to what's happening there in the Garden of Eden, we get a sense of what's happening. That pre-incarnate Christ, who's identified there in the Garden as the Tree of Life, he was the temple there too. Adam wasn't a priest. We went over that in the last few podcasts. Adam wasn't a priest. He wasn't a priest of a Levitical nature. He wasn't a priest after the Melchizedek order. Those are the only two priestly orders we know of. Adam was there to worship and have communion with the pre-incarnate Christ who would build his temple of those same human building blocks. The temple wasn't the garden. The temple was the pre-incarnate Christ, the tree of life. And when Adam fell, he was no longer worthy of being one of those building blocks of the temple. Having lost that standing, the pre-incarnate Christ was shrouded in mystery. And the angels came with that sword that turns about to protect that pre-incarnate Christ from humankind who had become unworthy to be a part of those building blocks of the temple. That's how we know that in Genesis it's not covenant creation, but it's the literal creation of the physical, spiritual realm, and earthly realm. That's how we know that the Mosaic Covenant is the first heavens and earth, that was ultimately done away when the new heavens and earth came to fulfill the original creation and the original intent 
of the Christ being the chief cornerstone and humankind being builded up the building blocks of that temple. So I hope that makes some sense. Like I say it's a very it's a mystical subject. It's a difficult subject. It's one we've got to take our time with, so it's something to just think through. And next week we will pick up with the temple as a microcosm of heaven and earth, which is the second item here. The temple as the sole place of sacrifice, which is the third item. And the temple as the place of the sacrificial priesthood. And as we cover each of those, it will become more and more evident to you how this new covenant is the fulfillment of that original creation and the doing away of that temporary Mosaic covenant. And it will become more clear to you how the classic understanding of 2,000 years of Christian teachers is the correct understanding that Genesis chapter 1 is all about the literal creation of the spiritual and earthly realms and the initiation of that temple, Christ, with Adam being the first building block, who when he fell was no longer worthy, which brought forth the story that brought us to the new heavens and earth and the fulfillment of what Christ began in the garden. So that's where that sort of brings us to the end of our show today. I, I hope that uh, this was helpful. It's a big subject. I know it's a big subject. Uh, in our regular Saturday morning shows, we'll keep learning more and more about this. As I mentioned in our next week, we will cover uh, the next subjects there, items two, three, and four, about this Christ, the immolated body of Christ being the temple of God. And as we do that, um, week to week, we will also be bringing Joe Daniels on to share his thoughts on why the Mosaic Covenant is the first heavens and earth that was done away and why Genesis was the literal creation of heaven and earth. So he's coming up soon, um, and I'm looking forward to that. Remember, I have written a couple books that you can have access to. The first is The Pearl, The Captivating Story of the Wondrous Love of God. Um, you can get that book on my website at www.spiritualfitnessprogram.com or at amazon.com. I also wrote a book called The Virtuous Life, God's First and Great Commandment. And this book is a book about how you can grow in the four cardinal virtues of discernment, self-control, courage, and right judgment. In essence, how you can daily integrate Christ into your life. That's what that book is about. Finally, I have my Essential Spiritual Fitness Program, which is available at my website, www.spiritualfitnessprogram.com. My spiritual fitness program is the best way for you to daily integrate Christ into your life. It teaches, it provides you daily reading throughout Scripture. You'll end up reading the New Testament three times a year. If you read deeper, you can read the Psalms every month. If you read deeper, you can read the Old Testament every year in this program. But doing just the first level of the program, what you will do is you'll read the New Testament three times a year, which is great. You'll do that in just 10 minutes a day. And I have over 1,500 footnotes in there from the early and historic church, both from the uh, Greek fathers, from the Catholic church, and from the Protestant reformers. Take from all areas those things that bring us the true faith and enlighten us to the true faith. And so you have access to those 1,500 plus footnotes in there, which help you understand scripture 
all from the standpoint of recognizing the Greek the Greekification of the world and the preparation for the Christ coming into that Greco-Roman world. And so the Septuagint is the base of our New Testament scripture and the base of our spiritual fitness program. And our Old Testament readings, you'll see, are all based on the Septuagint. So it's a great program for you to get started. You don't have to believe everything in there. You'll never believe everything anyone ever says. But it'll provide you a great means to work with God directly through his word and allow the Holy Spirit to have daily time with you to teach you whatever you need to learn that particular day. So looking forward, make sure you mark your calendar for next week as we're putting together another fantastic show for you. So be sure to tune in again next week at this same time. Thank you for joining us here today, this 28th day of March in the 2015th year of our Lord. I'm Paul Rakowitz, spiritual fitness coach, author and founder of the Essential Spiritual Fitness Program. I've enjoyed being your host and coming to you live this morning from Highland, Michigan, as I do every Saturday morning at 11 o'clock a.m. I hope you've been blessed by listening in. Be well, God bless, and I'll see you next time.